Our sermon text this evening comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Please stand. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Then what advantage has a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil? The good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Please be seated. Our gracious God and Father, it is a good word that has been read to us this evening and that we meditate upon this evening, like every word that is found in the Spirit of God, the truth. And therefore, it's authoritative for us, but it is also useful. And so we pray, O oh Father, that this evening that you would teach us. ways of thinking, in fact, that you would train us for the sake of righteousness. And do so, O Father, by your righteous word and these promises that are given to us in it, and that we would abide by them, that we would rest in them, and find comfort and strength in them. And so help us, Father, as we listen this evening, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you think about it for a moment, almost everything that is important to you in your life that you're counting upon is based upon either a promise that you have made or a promise someone else has made to you. When we are married, we take vows. When we uh, are baptized or one of our children is baptized, we take vows. Um, you've, when you join a church, become a member, you take vows. If you become citizen of a country, you take vows. If you join the military, there you take vows or take an oath. Or perhaps less seriously, if you join a club like a fraternity or sorority where your vows mean nothing. Um, but all these things show us that, and there's many more that we could list, right? We're counting on the words of somebody else, a promise they gave to us or a promise we made to them. It is no different in our relationship with God. There are things we vowed to him, but there's things that he has promised to us as well, that we have built everything in our life. Our view of salvation, our hope, is built 
upon one reality that what God has said to us is true. Such that when Paul speaks of the resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Christ is not raised, then we are liars and we are dead in our sins and we have no hope. It's all built upon the promise that we read in Scripture that that Christ is raised. Well, as we look at our, our passage this evening, this may not strike you as a first thought, but I do think it gets to the the very thing that Paul is concerned about in these opening verses of chapter 3, especially as he reflects upon the case that he's just made in chapters 1 and 2, where he's been talking about how both Jew and Gentile are equally sinful before God. He's going to extend that argument to verse 20 of this chapter. But we have this interlude here, and he's saying that he said in those two chapters that both are condemned. Both Jew and Gentile by nature are condemned. And they're condemned because they disregard God's revelation. In chapter 1, he talked about how the Gentiles see God's revelation in creation. It's on full display. They have no excuse. And yet they do not give glory to God because of their idolatry. The Jews have received God's revelation in the law. But they do not give glory to God because of their hypocrisy. Well, if that's the case, then you can see why he begins where he does. Somebody could simply say, then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Or even circumcision, which he was just talking about in the previous paragraph. And so Paul gives an answer. In verse 2, he says, much in every way. If we were to paraphrase that, he's saying out loud, there's so many things I could name. There's so many things that, that come to mind. And in Romans 9, when he poses the same question, there he gives a long list. He says to the Jews, he says, theirs is the adoption of sons and the glory and the, and the covenants, the worship and the promises and the patriarchs. And from them comes the Christ. He lists all these things. And he could list other things too, that it was for Israel that God descended upon Mount Sinai in fire and displayed his holiness and his righteousness and his powers on behalf of Israel uh, that Uh, God turned the water to blood, that he divided the sea, that he rained bread from heaven. He he poured out upon them meat on the the winds and and water from the rock. He caused the sun to stand still. Israel received so many benefits from the outstretched arm of God. He even set aside the laws of creation to do all these things. Paul could list any of these things, but he doesn't. He just chooses one thing. One thing, he says, to begin with, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And what he's saying is that God gave something very special to Israel. He gave his word. He says, first of all, he doesn't continue to the second or the third thing or many things like in chapter 9. He's content to simply say one thing, the oracles of God. And notice he doesn't say the law of God. He could have said that, but he doesn't. He said it before. He said, the oracles of God. Now, why is that significant? Why would he do that? When we think of oracles, and and you can see this in in literature and movies and all kinds of things, an oracle is one through whom the gods come and speak. It's this portal uh, for the gods to speak, and who comes and who predicts the future. You get this in in Percy Jackson, the lightning thief. He, He comes to the oracle who predicts his future. You have this in history, the oracle 
Adelphi, which was supposedly the place where the god Apollo would speak. Even Alexander the Great made a trip there to Delphi uh, to hear from the oracle about his future. Unfortunately, uh, oracles have office hours. And uh, at that particular oracle of Delphi, there were only six months of the year. It was on a special day. Uh, and so they weren't there in the office. Uh, but is this true to Alexander the Great? That makes no difference. He went and found the oracle, grabbed her by the hair, dragged her to the temple and said, all right, tell me about my future. She said, nobody's going to stop you. And um, I think she had a different motivation for saying that. But so everybody understands that when we hear this word oracle, it's something to do with the gods, divination, something like that. And that's true. That's what we believe. And we see this word about 25 times in, in the scriptures. And it draws attention to the fact that it's God who speaks. 1 Peter 4.11 talks about different forms of service. It says the one who serves should serve as if they're serving God himself. And then it says this in verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. There's something sobering about this. This is God's speech. And he entrusted it to Israel as his trustees. He inscribed it. He gave it to them in written form. All these promises in the law, they're given to Israel. These promises of his steadfast love and his faithfulness to his people that he would never, ever forsake. Well, that's interesting that that should be brought up. Because notice what he does in verses 3 and 4. He continues this idea of talking with somebody who's asking him questions, and he uses the word play. Well, if some are unfaithful, does that nullify God's faithfulness? If, if God has given the promise, you'll always be my people, but some are unfaithful, does that mean that God is no longer faithful? And he says, by no means, which we could translate as, God forbid, that's outrageous. Israel's unfaithfulness does not undo God's faithfulness. In fact, he says in verse 4, and this is significant how he puts it, in fact, even if every man was a liar... Every person that you met was a liar. God would still be true. Man is who he is. He's false and unfaithful. But that does not alter who God is. He is who he is. He's faithful and he's true. He says, just as is written in Psalm 51, verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and in the Hebrew, prove blameless when you are judged. As he says here, prevail when you are, are judged. The context of this is David is confessing his sin, the sin he committed with Bathsheba. He's looking to God in his abundant mercy, and he says, my transgressions are over before me. I see my sin. He says, but as I confess this sin, which is against you, ultimately, as he puts that sin against the backdrop of God and his supreme majesty and his holiness and his righteousness, he's saying it, it proves you to be true to who you are that my sin does not do away with your righteousness. It actually puts God's righteousness in the spotlight. In other words, the filth of David's sin puts the purity of God's holiness in relief. One of the most amusing things of living in Alaska is that tourists would come in the summer to Fairbanks and ask you, so where are the northern lights? I don't see them. They would ask it in the middle of the day in the summer. It says, well, they only appear at night, and it has to be really dark. And the reason for that, you have to go far north to see them in, in their strength and their beauty and their light, because you need to see them against the backdrop of blackness. That's how you see them. You have to see them in relief for them to be vibrant and, 
and beautiful. And that's what is being said here by David. It's when I put my sin against the backdrop of your holiness, you're justified in anything you say to me. You prevail in what you judge against me. And so what Paul is saying is Israel's unfaithfulness sets God's faithfulness in relief, not in limbo. Let man be what he is. He's a liar. But let God be who he is. He's true. Well, that could raise another question. He gets that in verses 5 to 6. Someone could say this. So if my unrighteousness helps to establish God's righteousness, if it puts it in bold relief, then why would God punish me? In other words, if God gains uh, by my sin, why would he punish me for it? Wouldn't that actually make God unrighteous? It's the wrong question. It's a bad question. You notice what he shows us. The question is sacrilegious. He doesn't say it's false. He said this is slanderous. Slanderous against whom? Against our religion, against Paul, against God. This is why Paul says, I'm speaking in a human way. Understand, I'm not telling you what I think. This is not what God thinks. This is how some people think. And yet he responds so briefly, cryptically, he says, how then could God judge the world? Your argument doesn't make any sense. C.S. Lewis was debating someone. And this person was making the case that all that you see around you is an illusion. The universe is not real. And went on and on making their, their case for this, that what you see is not there. The universe is not real. It came time for C.S. Lewis to speak. And his first sentence was this. How do I debate somebody who's not there? That's the logical implication of what you're saying. If nothing is real, then we shouldn't be paying attention to you. If this is all an illusion, including you, how do I respond to a ghost? If God cannot judge sin, how will we judge it in the day of judgment? This is one of the worst things we could ever hear when you open up the book of Revelation, the chapter 5. All heaven is weeping. Because nobody is found worthy to open the scroll with the seven seals. And in that scroll, finally, is God's judgment against all the cruelty and the evil and the sin that Satan and death have perpetrated on this world. All the terrible things that have happened. Nobody is worthy to open that scroll. This is not going to happen. There's not going to be justice. Oh, but one is found to be worthy. The Lion of Judah. We need judgment. We need justice. Again, let God be true. Let him be true to his justice. Let him do what only he can do, and that's to be just. But this person that is arguing with Paul is very persistent. They try again. They've got yet another argument in verses 7 through 8. And someone could put it this way. My falsehood makes God's truthfulness shine even more brightly. If my lie brings out God's truth and brings him more glory, why am I condemned? See what they're saying? God's glory is the end. My sin is the means. The end justifies the means. And Paul, kind of being sarcastic, says, why not go a step further and say, do evil so that good may come? Since we've kind of lost all sanity, let's just take it another step. And you see, the idea here is that God's faithfulness and the truthfulness of his word is thought to be vulnerable, that it's open to abuse. This is the same thing that will happen in Romans 6. As Paul lays out the, the truth of the doctrine of justification by grace through faith, he says it can be misunderstood, and it has been misunderstood. 
And then some who are saved, you believe that we're justified through faith by grace and you're opening up for people to, lo- to live a loose life. You're, you're going to uh, somehow discourage holy living. Listen to what he says in Romans 6.1. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Kind of the same response here. Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. And look what he says in verse 19 of Romans 6. I put this in human terms. Exactly the same argument that he's making here. The gospel of God's grace has been abused by some as an excuse for sin. So parents, what if one of your children came up to you and said this to you? You know, when I, if I disobey you, it's only encouraging you to practice patience and to work on this important Christian grace of forgiveness. Why are you getting mad at me? I'm actually doing you a favor. Parents, you can answer that one when you get home. If your children say, what a great idea. That's an excellent argument. It's really not an excellent argument. But it's an argument that's being made here that some people want to accuse Paul of encouraging this idea and preaching this idea. And he says, that is false. This is slanderous. And the irony here is that that their condemnation is just. All that use God's truth and his righteousness and his faithfulness as an excuse for their sin or for license, they will be judged. He says they should be, and they should be condemned. They know better. And sin does illumine God's righteousness, but it's still sin. And it's not exempt from from righteousness. It's not exempt from being punished because God's glory is also displayed when he punishes and when he judges sin. And so these kind of abuses and questions do not undermine God's righteousness or his faithfulness or the truth of his word. No matter what men will do, God will always be the same. You will fail. God will always be faithful. You may be proven to be unrighteous on occasions. He is always righteous. You may lie. He will always be truthful. None of these things can nullify who God is. And even if it's the case, if much of Israel does not respond to God's promises, does not respond to the gospel in faith, God's word is still true. God's character remains the same, that he is faithful and he is righteous. And you see what what Paul is saying here as we think of the significance of this, this faithfulness of God, it goes to the heart of who he is, to his character and his excellency, that God is utterly trustworthy. He's always dependable. He's reliable. He is the truth. And that's why we understand that God keeps his covenant. He keeps his word. He keeps his promises. He keeps everything else that he says about himself, that he is faithful to all that he claims, all that he predicts, and all that he is. In fact, he can't do anything other than that because it's who he is. Deuteronomy 32.4, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. He is according to his actions. His actions are according to who he is. And because God is truth, his revelation, his promises, even his oracles correspond accordingly. In Hebrews 6, he is making the the argument that our salvation is grounded upon this very thing. Listen to what he says in verse 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Where is our hope? It's built upon the fact that this God who speaks to us cannot lie and he does not change. His word is true because it reflects who he is. And this is true. This is crucial. It's crucial because you and I are not faithful. We are not reliable. We're not always true. And God doesn't have to prove that we're not true because we prove that ourselves. We claim to love God with all of our heart. But we do not always give him our best. We have resolved again and again to make Christ Lord, but sometimes we make him much less. We've promised to be faithful, but we fall short despite our good intentions. So that God is justified in his word when he speaks. Like in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie. Or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and not fulfill it? We need this, right? We need God to be true. We need him to be faithful. We need God to be himself. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And it's a gospel that speaks to this. It speaks to the faithfulness of our God. All the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. They find their yes in him to which we say, amen. What God has ordained in wisdom, what he foreshadowed in signs and ceremonies in the Old Testament, what he predicted in the prophets, what he promised by the oracles of God, this is revealed in Jesus Christ. If you think about it, the appearing of Christ is a fulfillment of God's promise to raise up one who would be the Messiah, that he would raise up one from the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, that he would raise up a suffering servant or David's greater son, a humble king who would ride on a donkey, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. If you think of the gospel, what is it? It's a word of truth. It's a word of truth that comes in fullness in the person of Christ. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is truth incarnate. The true light, the true vine, the true bread from heaven, the one who is faithful. And all who look to him and look to his, his death and his resurrection, according to the promise of God, are forgiven of their sins and have life and have eternal life. All of our confidence, all of our comfort is, is based upon this, that God's promise is true. Our forgiveness, our righteousness, our being washed clean of, of our sin, our future glory, all these things are built upon this. God's eternal covenant is built upon that, that God's eternal a character, that he's faithful uh, to his promises is because he's a faithful person. His oracles are true because he is true. That God keeps his covenant. He keeps his word. He keeps his oath. His yes means yes. And that's why when we come to church, we need to hear his promises again and again. 
And we need to hear that those promises are true. We need to hear that he is faithful to those promises. Do we need forgiveness? Scripture says if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Do we need protection from our adversary? Scripture says the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you against the evil one. Are you afraid that the temptations that you are encountering, encountering as a Christian will overwhelm you? What does Scripture say? God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Do you need encouragement to hold on? Let us hold to the hope we profess, for he who promises is faithful. His promise is to love us to the very end. A love that's so strong that says that neither death nor life nor the present nor the future nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He's promised that. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will never abandon us and never forget us. That is his promise. He is with us to the end of the ages and for the ages to come. That is his promise. Christ has declared his love for us in his promises. He's proved his love for us in his death. He testifies to that love by his spirit. And what you need to do is let the light of his truth fill your heart. And let his promises comfort you. To receive them just as you received him. To rest in them just as you rest in him. To believe in Christ And let Christ be who he is. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. He is your Savior and your Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your promises, and we thank you, Father, that they are faithful just as you are. We ask, O oh God, that you'd help us to be a people of faith, that we would walk in the strength of your promises and the comfort that they give to us as a people who are in great need. And so, Father, help us to do these things. Grant us your spirit, and may he continue to testify to us not only the truth of these things, but the truth of who we are and what you've promised to give to us. We thank you for all these things that are ours by faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.